be seated. Encourage you to take out your Bible this morning, opening to the book of Revelation, chapter 4 this morning. Revelation chapter 4, as we have now made our way through the, the seven churches that make up Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and now we've come to what is often perceived to be a transition in the book of Revelation. The transition from chapter 3, the chapters 2 and 3, into chapter 4. But it's really not. It's not a transition. It's not unusual, though, to uh, hear a sermon series or books or whatever on the seven churches. And that's it. And that's not wrong. I mean, you, there's valuable things to glean from that. And it's not unusual to to hear a sermon series or read a book on Revelation 4 and 5, independent of everything else. And, and that's not wrong. You can pick up wonderful, worshipful things from, from just studying those independently. But I think maximum value, maximum benefit is gleaned when we do the hard work of seeing how Christ intends chapters 2 and 3, 1, 2, and 3, to connect what we see in chapters 4 and 5, and for that matter, throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. And so this morning, my, my intention is threefold. This morning's message will be somewhat different from what we usually do. Uh, much of what I'm doing this morning is setting up, if you will, um, where we're going to be for the next couple of weeks, uh, messages in, in Revelation 4 and 5. In fact, my intention as I was thinking about it this week, it's threefold this morning. Number one, I want to try to connect the dots between Revelation 1, 2, and 3 and the rest of Revelation. I want us to begin to see how these things may come together. Secondly, I hope to, even though we are setting the stage, so to speak, this morning, to bring a word of hope to every one of us this morning. Every one of us who this morning may be burdened, by the difficulty of living the Christian life, burdened, even discouraged, even in despair over the difficulty of overcoming temptation, uh, living faithfully unto Jesus. I hope there will be, even at the outset of this, a word of hope uh, that we will see that God has made provision for each and every one of us in those burdens, in those despairs, that even this day as we walk out of this room together, uh, there is sufficient grace to overcome all of that. And then the, the third thing I hope to do this morning is to erect, uh, for better, lack of a better, the scaffolding, to erect the scaffolding that will help us in the next couple of weeks go back in in Revelation 4 and 5 and put the building blocks of it back on, kind of fill the scaffolding in. So this morning I want to kind of lay the, the outline, the scaffolding, uh, if you're a gardener, the trellis. I want to build the trellis so that next week uh, we'll do the vine work. Next week we'll kind of fill in this scaffolding that we put in place. So uh, that's kind of the intent this morning. The title of the message this morning is The Prescription for Conquering. The Prescription for Conquering. And this morning, at least for now, I'm only going to read one verse of Scripture to us. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what may, must take place after this. Well, let's pause there for, for the bulk of our time this morning. Over the last couple of months, We've been reading the mail of seven historical churches in Asia Minor. Seven specific congregations in and around Asia. Christ had spoken a word. John wrote it down. And it was circulated among those churches to be read. And it, every one of these churches, they were unique churches, but every one of them were experiencing some form of persecution, some form of temptation, or maybe even some internal sin. Most of them were facing the external pressure of the Roman government, right? Persecution, all that was going on around them. They were also being persecuted by the religion of the Jews in the synagogues. 
Remember, the, the Christians in the first century were now, were now the enemies of the Jews. Why? Because these Christians had forsaken their past. They had forsaken the religion of their youth. They had forsaken the religion of their parents. They had forsaken the, the church that they grew up in. And they had found a true religion. A true religion around a person. Not around works, not around duty, not around do this, 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 and this, but a religion, a true religion that centered upon a person and what that person has done and what that person, his works, and what he has done for us. And so there was this persecution going on from the Jews as well. Some of the congregations that received these seven letters, they were having to fight against false teachers. The Nicolaitans were mentioned in a couple of the churches, false teachers who had infiltrated the walls of the church and were advocating a religion of works. <laughs> it goes against the gospel. It goes against the Christian religion that these Christians had turned to. We're coming in and espousing works. Christ, fine, plus works. And Jesus himself said, oh, I, I hate the Nicolaitans because they undermine what I've done. And then against that, there was also, most of these churches had some kind of an internal weakness of their own. Their love for Christ had grown cold. Or they had become very materialistic. Or they had become very worldly. That, that led to compromise with the world. If you go back, and we're not going to go through them all, but churches 1 and 7, Ephesus and Laodicea, well, Jesus was just flat out sick of them. He was ready to spit them out of his mouth. Because they had drifted away from him. They were doing all their works. They were, doing all their, they were gathering. They were singing. They were praying. They were doing all the right things. But their hearts right here had drifted away from the king, away from the centrality of Jesus Christ. Churches 2 and 6, Smyrna and Philadelphia, well, uh, they were doing better. They, they're not perfect churches by any means. Uh, but there was no word of rebuke to them. And which just simply means they're not perfect, but they're on the right track. You've turned away from all of the things. You've turned to Jesus Christ. And yes, there's, you're not perfect Christians. You're not a perfect church. None of those exist, not till we get to heaven. That'll be the perfect church. If you're looking for a perfect church, it will never be this one. It won't be any of the others. But they were on the right track because they were clinging to Jesus Christ. And then those middle churches, 3, 4, and 5, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, well, they're in bad shape. In one case, the majority of the people had abandoned the faith and turned to false doctrine. In another one, there's a faithful minority, but they're the remnant. There's, there's just a handful of people who are clinging to Jesus. And the other church, well, it's just it's completely compromised with the world. It's a mixture of, of faithfulness to Christ and faithfulness to the world. Those are the nature of churches in the first century here in the book of Revelation. Now, why, as we're transitioning into chapter 4, why? We've already preached through the seven churches. We've already gone through all these. Why take the time to review or overview these seven churches once again? Because, because of the purpose that they serve in the book of Revelation. More than just giving us, going back and reviewing them this morning, more than just giving us a historical account of the churches, that we could care less about. I do think it's helpful for us to remember the nature of these churches and to recall what Jesus addresses in them, recall Jesus' words of rebuke to them, recall Jesus' words to encouragement to them. Why? Because as we're transitioning into chapter 4 this morning, there is a connection between the seven churches and what we see in chapters 4 and 5 and everything else we see in the book of Revelation. These seven churches. Why seven? This goes back to something we said at the very outset of our, the beginning of our sermon series. In the book of Revelation, the number seven is symbolic. Seven is symbolic for perfection. It's a symbolic number. There were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. In fact, as, as uh, the, the, the messenger would have gone from church to church to church, there would have been churches in between that they walked right past to go to the next destination. Why seven then? Because they are representative. They are real churches, true churches, and Jesus' message to those real Christians in those real churches address their very specific needs. But Jesus draws those seven out 
because they are representative of every church, in every age, in every Christian. Every battle, we, what, what, what he exposes in their churches are very prominent in our churches. And, and today, it's not one church that we as Christians would identify with. It's all of them. There's going to be elements of compromise. There's going to be elements of my, my affections for Christ to become lukewarm. There's going to be uh, elements of idolatry. There's going to be elements of all of these things at various times in us. These are representative churches. And that's important for us to remember even as we're going forward. We live in a day today, as Christians have in every age, where it's easy to become frustrated with the church. It's easy to become cynical about the church. And we say things like, man, the church sure isn't like what it used to be. What the church needs is to get back to, and then you pick your favorite decade, or you pick your favorite century, and then that's in your mind, in my mind, what, what we need to do is get back to that. Or we go on to say, man, the church today, man, it's, it's compromised. The church today, it's, it's infiltrated, invaded by the, by the world. The church today has just become so worldly. Man, these are bad times. The church has never been as bad as it is today. Today, man, Christians, they're just not what they used to be when I was a kid. Christians today, their, their lives, they're believing things. They're not living faithful to the gospel. They're, they're living contrary. To which there's no argument against that, except to say, put it in the context of the seven churches. What Jesus' point here is you realize that things today are not the worst they've ever been. They're exactly as they've always been. And the world that we live in today, you will not hear anyone argue that it's not bad. But I deny, I reject wholeheartedly. It's, it's an ignorance of history to say that th our world today is the worst it's ever been. It's not the case at all. It's as bad as it's always been. It manifests itself in different ways because of technology, because, you know, but, but it's as bad and evil as it's always been. The world today is every bit as chaotic and earthquakes and illness and temptation and all kinds of things as was happening in the seven churches. And that's the point. That's the point. John writes messages to these seven churches, and because they're representative of every church in every age, he's writing to us, and he's writing to encourage where it applies. He's writing to warn those who have drifted away from Christ in every church, in every age, those who've drifted away from their king, who've drifted away from his sovereignty, his rule over their lives. And John, writing the words of Christ, calls them to repent, not just mere, I repent, but a heartfelt, you've drifted from your king. Repentance is person-oriented. Christianity is person-oriented. It's about a person. Repentance is turning to that person, returning to that person, to Jesus Christ, to the King. And then also in these letters to the seven churches, you also notice at the end of each letter, every one of them, there is a call for each of the churches to conquer and overcome. There's a word of promise to those who conquer and overcome. Just for example, go back to where we were last week, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Here was the one to the Laodicea. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. A wonderful promise. But it's only for those who conquer. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so that's Jesus' call to the church at Laodicea, but they're representative of every church in every age. That's his call to you and I as well. Hey, Covenant Life Church, the same call to you. Conquer the temptations, the worldliness, the compromise, all those things they were battling and you are battling. The call is to conquer those things, to persevere. The, the suffering, the persecution that they were going on in the first century, the persecution, the suffering that we face in our day. Persevere, conquer, persevere. Don't get sidetracked. 
Don't be overcome. Press on. Cross the finish line. Win the prize. That's the call in, in each of these letters. A call to conquer and overcome. Easy enough, right? He lays out for us. Here's the problem. Repent. Now conquer and overcome. Hey, easy. Well, not so fast. I will tell you, that's where a lot of preaching stops. If you don't continue on into chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and the rest of the book of Revelation after these letters to the seven churches, that's what you're left with as we discuss this this morning. Christ's final word to you, conquer and overcome. Go do it. It's moralistic preaching. I would call it pharisaical preaching. It's law preaching. It's not Christian preaching. The fact of the matter is, we can hear these exhortations, this call of Christ to every church, to every one of us, conquer, overcome your temptations. Overcome the persecution, the suffering you're going through. We can hear those words, but if we have ears to hear, which is what Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, please listen and think hard about what I'm saying. If we honestly listen and survey our individual burdens and survey our hurts, our wounds, if we look at our sin that still festers in our hearts, if we look at the world in which we're walking out into, the temptation, the suffering we're going to face, when we see the hostile culture around us, when we think about not just out there, but inside of us, the fickle, rebellious nature of our own hearts that we're battling. Well, now all of a sudden, that command to, com- to conquer and overcome, that's not such an easy thing to do. And it's an incomplete message to leave it as we leave today. Let's pray for one another. We'll, we'll conquer. It's the right prayer to pray, but it leaves out the means to do it. None of us can do this in our own power. None of us can do this in our own strength. What, it sounds so easy, and, and, and a lot of preaching that we grew up with, and I'm not picking on it, I think well-intended, but just didn't complete the message. It didn't finish the story. It left it in man's lap to try to do what, let's just be honest, if, if you are spiritually humble at all, you know is impossible to do on your own. And if we have ears to hear what the Spirit of Christ says to His churches as He walks in our midst, as He exposes the struggles in our own hearts, if we are not spiritually proud like the Laodiceans, but we're spiritually humble, and our knees knock when Jesus says, to Him who overcomes and conquers, you will sit down with my Father on His throne. When I hear that, I don't have any chance whatsoever of sitting on that throne next to my father. Not in my own strength. Not in my own power. I haven't been able to conquer or overcome, overcome for more than, man, by grace I may get a day. In most instances, it's a matter of hours, maybe minutes, man, maybe seconds. Our knees buckle under the weight of Christ's call. We feel there's no way. I, I, I have ears to hear. I hear what he's saying. He's exposing this. He's calling me to repent. To those who conquer, they will over and overcome. Here's the promise for you. But I can't. And to leave chapter 3 leaves us utterly exposed and utterly should be discouraged. Good news. Insert chapter 4. <laughs> Here comes comes the answer to what we're looking for. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, he's speaking there, chapter 1, verse 9, 10, and 11, where Christ speaks, and there we're told it sounds like a trumpet. Same voice. That voice says now, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, this is where for many of us, we have to, we're going to have to reframe our thinking. And I said this early in our study. I'll say it again. 
I do not expect anyone to have to, you don't have to view Revelation the way I view it. That my, my purpose is not to try to bring you into where I'm at, because truth be told, next year I may have a totally different view of it. But what my purpose is, is to try to connect the dots, because the book of Revelation is about pointing us to Jesus. And that's what my purpose is. And as we look here, he tells us here, look to Jesus. Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. So let's put all this together for just a moment. Those letters from chapter 2 and 3 found that we, we've been going through, those form the background of everything else that's coming. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, when I think about the book of Revelation in my mind, I think literally like this. Yeah, the first few chapters, that's the seven letters. And then somehow it transitions into, and then the rest after that, it's just all about the future and the things. That's the framework I grew up with. We have to think logically. That makes no sense whatsoever. There has to be a connection. If all of biblical revelation reaches, is pushing towards a final endpoint, and this is the final endpoint, there's, there's got to be continuity there. And so these letters help us to understand what's going to come next. And I told you early on, in fact, I think it's that very first message, the book of Revelation, despite how it's often perceived, really is the most practical book in all of the Bible. That's stunning to think about when we think about the complexities and the difficulties and the, the discussions and, and sometimes the disagreements that come with the book of Revelation. But I stand by, it is the most practical book in the Bible, and I hope you're beginning to see that. I hope you're beginning to see that, that what these churches we've been looking at, these seven churches, representative of us, what these seven churches need in all of the opposition that they're facing, in all the hardships that they're facing, in all their temptation to compromise, to worldliness, their battles against sin, what they need more than anything else, what we need more than anything else is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of God, of Jesus Christ, which, oh, by the way, that is the title of the book. What we need is to see Jesus. That's what they need. Symbolically, that's what we need. And lo and behold, that's what the book of Revelation is all about. We need to see Christ. There is no more urgent need for the church today than to see Christ in his resplendent glory, to see him as the revelation of God that he is, the revelation of God, Jesus Christ. It's all about him. It's always been about him. The book of Revelation is about him. And to so see him that we be allured by him, enchanted by him, fascinated by him, we'd find in him our all in all that we'd see him as sufficient for our every need. And Satan would be pleased. You guys want to study the book of Revelation and make it all about the end times and your charts and your diet? Hey, go ahead. As long as you miss the whole point of it all. And as long as you keep the whole story of it all just kind of Seven churches, future in time events, let's fight and bicker. And I say fight, I mean, that. it's always a respectful dialogue. Spend your time doing it as long as you never, ever, ever see the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Because that is how you conquer and overcome. Kind of like the incident in Matthew's gospel in chapter 14, you know it. Jesus comes walking on the water to his disciples at night. They're in the boat. The waves are crashing. The storm is blowing. They are petrified. Jesus comes walking on the boat, walking on the water to the boat. He identifies himself. And Peter says to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to walk on the water. Jesus says, come. Peter gets out of the boat. He begins walking across the surface of the waves. He takes his eyes off of Christ. He looks at the waves around him. He looks at the storm. And all of a sudden, what happens? He's not walking on the water anymore. He's sinking. He's drowning. Metaphorically, that's where many Christians are today. Drowning, discouraged, sinking, frustrated. 
He saw the storm swirling around him. Fear overtook him. Jesus rescued him by grace. But isn't that how we are? We look at the storm. We look at the waves. Jesus has come to us. Made himself accessible. In the revelation of God, he has pulled back the veil here in chapter 4 and says, here's me now. Look at me on my throne. We're going to get more in detail of that as we go. Here I am, and we are down here looking to ourselves to conquer. Conquer my sin. Conquer my insecurities. All that, the people I work with, the, the people I go to church with, the, the pressures that I'm under, the opposition I face. And it's no wonder we start to sink. It's no wonder we are overwhelmed and overcome. How in the world are we going to conquer and overcome in our own strength by looking at the man in the mirror or the woman in the mirror or the young person in the mirror? Well, just like with Peter, we must fix our eyes upon Jesus who rides the storm. We must fill our gaze to the uttermost, fill it to the brim with Christ in his person, in his work, in his excellencies, in his beauty, in his complexities, in his majesty, in his high priestly role, in his prophetic role, in his kingship role, in his greatness. We must be filled to the brim our eyes with all that Christ is in his sovereignty and grace. And that's what the rest of the revelation is. Chapters 4 and 5 will be very clear, and I would contend to you, when we continue on, it's still about that same thing, about seeing Christ in that way. As we get into chapter 4, we're invited, come up here. You seven churches and every church down here with your problems and and your sin and your struggles. Chapter 4, come up here to where I am and let me show you what must soon take place. We're going to get into that in a little bit more detail. What's happening right now? Right now. If you will, let's put it this way. Come on up into the command center. You down, seven churches, every church in every age, struggling. You don't understand the suffering you're going through, the persecution, you're wallowing, you're struggling. Come up to the command center. Come up to where the throne is. Come and see things as they really are, not as you see them. And suddenly, the sorrow, the sin, the hurts, the hostility, that moments ago as one of the representative seven churches we were, is put into that larger context, now we learn the true hope of victory, of conquering, of overcoming has nothing to do with how strong we are, how cunning we are, how wise we are, how many steps we have to, but it has everything to do with the power of the infinite, eternal God who sits on his throne now. Chapter 4 does not transition to the future end time. Chapter 4 is for the seven churches and every church they represent, and it is showing us right now in the midst of your struggle. Look at who's in control. Look who's on the throne. This is where just Psalm 114, which we were in this morning, looking at the omnipotence of our God in delivering his people and sustaining his people. That's not just a nice little text. Let me pray through that this morning. Some of us need to cling to that with our very lives this morning because we are sinking with the storms. We are sinking because we've taken our eyes off of this God who knows no limitations. This God who is not sitting back looking and observing and that happened. Okay, maybe I should do this. Psalm 114 takes us into the control center. (laughs) And he says, behold your God. Here's your hope. 
It's in me. And so what we're seeing here, what John is showing us in this transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4, is that the primary path to victory, the primary path to conquering and overcoming for these seven churches and for you and I, the primary path to victory is seeing and looking up and seeing the glorious holiness, the sovereignty, the greatness of our God in Jesus Christ. When God's people are in the midst of temptation and persecution, oh, that's, that's the context. That's, the, that's where these seven churches are. That's where we are. When God's people are in the midst of those things, the best remedy, the only remedy, is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. No other answer, no matter how well-intending it may be from man. If it's not Christ, it cannot answer the problem. It cannot answer our problem. It cannot answer the world's problems. The recognition of God in His greatness, in His glory, in His omnipotence. Chapter 4 guarantees the conquering and overcoming for the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Let's frame it that way. Chapter 4 guarantees the conquering of chapters 2 and 3. The victory will be won for the people of God. Justice will be vindicated. Blessing will be given. Eternal joy will be theirs. And so this awesome scene in the fourth and fifth chapters of Revelations gives us perspective. Perspective. The first three chapters are foundation for everything else that's coming. This glimpse into heaven. This glimpse of our king on his throne. The churches to whom he wrote in these seven letters, these first three chapters, think of it this way. This is the view from below. This is our view as one of the seven churches. This is our view. This is what we feel happening in the moment. This is our experience, our temptation, our struggle, the battle, the fight. The view from below. Now the rest of Revelation is about now from down here, set your gaze up here to what's really happening. Down here, this is what you feel. This is what it feels like to you. This is what your emotions and Satan and the flesh and everything would have you believe. Look up. Here's what's really happening. At the exact same moment. Chapter 4 and 5 and the rest, I contend, is not looking out to some future day that we don't know when. It is simultaneous to what's happening in the seven churches and in our church today, here's this. Here's your king. And so what this does, it allows you and I as believers to see things. We can see earth as it is. We can feel the weight. We can feel the struggle. We, we live in this earth. But through it all, we can keep a constant gaze and a constant realization and understanding of, but that's the right way to view things. And it's a battle, and it's a fight, and Satan is doing everything in his power to convince us, one, that this is a stupid tactic. You know, it can't be this simple. Christ can't be that excellent. That's not what the book of Revelation is about. Doing everything he can. And yet, this is God's grace to us. There was something we didn't hit on last week because I wanted to make sure we brought it up today. In chapter 3, verse 21, the promise, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. The one who conquers, it's a battle. Man, to get there, it's, it's not just a straight line, easy, things get easier as you go. That was what I used to think and hope. It's not been my experience, and from older saints, it seems to be not their experience either. It's a constant battle up and down. And Jesus says this, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. What? As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This idea that the Christian life 
should be getting easier and easier and easier. I don't think it's biblical. We've talked about in different settings that even Christ conquered through suffering. That's what he says there. He himself conquered through his suffering. That's his death upon the cross. And our suffering that we face in this life, do we think we're better than Jesus? <laughs> Again, I didn't mean that as smug as that probably sounded out, came out. Do, do we think we deserve better treatment than Jesus got? We should expect suffering in this world. And the fact that Christ faced suffering and death and overcame all that he went through and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, that too is the paradigm that we must understand. That's, that is the battle for the seven churches, for us. It is a constant battle, but in chapters 4, 5, 6, the rest of Revelation, where we find everything that we need to get through it so that we will conquer so that we will claim the promise of being seated on the throne with the king. And I don't want to get too far out in advance, but I, 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 I'm trying to connect dots in this message. So we know that chapter 6 is looming out there on the horizon, right? Chapter 6, we're going to see things like the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the great earthquakes and the, the other incredible natural disasters. It's all part of the same vision. There's not a fast forward into some future unknown date. Now, I readily admit there will be multitudes of people who see it a different way. I would just simply urge, in light of the continuity of the message and what John and the gospel is moving toward, investigate, is it not, does it not fit together as a possibility that this is all the same vision? All the events described throughout the rest of Revelation are intended not for some future Christians that we don't get to enjoy it because we may not be there. Why would he provide all that to these seven churches if, they didn't, if there was nothing beneficial for them? This is for them and for every church in their day and their livelihood. And so we come to this throne room of God. The scene described for us in verse 1 and everything we see in chapter 4 is intended to be, you know, I bet we all have our favorite verses, don't we? Our favorite Bible verse. If we went around the room, I asked you, you'd have it. Maybe you have your favorite book of the Bible. I would contend to you, pray that God would help make Revelation chapter 4 your life's chapter. Because this really is the key to everything. If Christians could maintain this vision of Revelation 4 and 5, it is accurate to say ultimate victory is assured. <laughs> if, if Christians could absolutely maintain what we're going to see here in these passages, there would be no discouragement. And that may sound very insensitive to someone this morning who's going through that. I don't mean to undermine that. I think that's the intent of the passage here. Now, there's two keys to understanding this passage in Revelation 4 and 5. I told you I wanted to set up scaffolding kind of for next week, kind of the, the trellis for where we're going. So as we look at chapter 4 more in depth next week, I think it's helpful to kind of pay attention to the prepositions. Um, as we go through the passage, it's very clear that the throne is front and center. Everything is revolving around the throne. And the prepositions speak mostly about things that occur on the throne, around the throne, from the throne, before the throne, beside the throne, and towards the throne. And that will be our outline going forward in the next couple of weeks. It all revolves around the throne, the one who's on the throne, and the activity going on around it, derived from it. And so that's kind of the direction we're going as we're laying it out here, looking to the throne, out of, from, from down here our struggle, looking up. That's how we want to address it. And secondly, I think it's helpful so just kind of keep in mind, it's, you may already be thinking this way. Keep in mind, what we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is a vision, not a photograph. There's been a lot of wrong theology in the book of Revelation that's come from taking a very literalistic understanding of this. If we take 4 and 5 as a photograph, not as John himself says, a vision, what do we have here? We have a physical throne somewhere, and we have that throne made of some material product, and then we have surrounded by other 
physical thrones made of physical product, and then we have literal seven-horned lambs with seven eyes. It's not a photograph. It's a vision. John does not see this with his literal eyes or hear it with his little ears. He himself says he's carried away into some kind of ecstatic experience. What does it mean? No idea. No idea whatsoever. But we want to make sure we, get, we keep that clear. Let the vision that we see here in 4 and 5, let it speak to our imaginations. Let it speak to us so that our breath is taken away by the majesty, the glory, the excellency of the one who's on the throne. We get robbed of that when we try to literally figure all this out. It's not the purpose. After this, I looked. After what? After the first vision, which began in chapter 1, verse 9, 10, and 11, which includes the seven letters to the seven churches. After that, I looked and behold, meaning I saw a vision of something, a vision of God. I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, come to the throne. And I will show you what must take place after this. Behold, a door. This door was for the seven churches. It's for you and I. This is something, this door leads to something out of your struggle, out of your hardship. Even you churches that... You're on the right track. You're not perfect, but you're on the right track. You just got to continue to. There's a door here. You need what's through this door. It's an invitation to come. You must grasp this. Covenant Life Church, we must grasp what's in this door. And the one who has opened the door and the voice who has summoned John to enter is the same voice from chapter 1. It is the Son of Man. It is Jesus Christ who's speaking to him again. And keep in mind, as we look at chapters 4, well, the rest of Revelation. This is still a letter that was written to the seven churches. Now, within the letter that was circulated among the seven churches, they heard the letter that was written to them specifically, and they heard the letter that was written to all the other churches. But the rest of Revelation is for those seven churches as well, and it's for us as well. And it's talking about things that are going to happen in their immediate future. And by implication, the things that will happen presently for every church in every age, because the one on the throne is eternal, does not change. Um, and so the point of the vision here is not to foretell of future events. It's to give Christians today and in every age a great hope, a great vision of a great king who's on his throne. And that king is on that throne because in his life, death, and resurrection, he did everything necessary to claim that spot. That king on that throne did everything that every member of those seven churches and every member of Christ's true church throughout the ages needs. Conquering and victory comes not through their efforts, our efforts comes by believing and clinging to and appropriating and applying and becoming what he has done. And the vision is going to be all about this king on the throne. He's in control. He's done it all. But this is a vision that must dominate our vision. If it doesn't, We can't overcome. We can't conquer. It was a cold, cold, I believe it was a January Friday morning. It was around 2007. The time was about 10 minutes to 8 in the morning. It was the middle of rush hour in Washington, D.C. There was a young man who placed himself 
in a position there in, in the plaza where people on their way to work were, were getting on the tram. And what he did, he sat there, he opened up a case, he pulled out a violin. He placed down his empty case down on the, on the ground. He threw a few wrinkled dollars into the case, kind of seed money, right, to kind of get the pastor buyers to understand. Hey, throw a few dollars in. The videotape reveals that this violinist who was just wearing, a, I think it was a Washington Nationals cap and just a regular Joe, he just began to play his violin. He performed actually six classical pieces of just wonderful music. And he stood there for approximately 45 minutes. And the video evidence shows that over a thousand people walked past him. It was well over six minutes before anybody even took the time to even the courtesy to acknowledge. And even that was for a few seconds. By and large, most people walked right by all day long. Well, the man in the baseball hat playing the violin was a man named Josh Bell, a 39-year-old acclaimed violinist, a child prodigy, who just three days prior to this played in the Boston Symphony. Two weeks prior to this, played to a standing room only audience at the Music Center outside of Washington. And soon after this performance in the subway, he went on on a European tour where he sold out stadiums all across Europe. For 45 minutes approximately, he played. Only a handful of people even stopped. A few people threw in some change. This violinist, concert prodigy violinist, who his own fee to play these stadiums is, get this, $1,000 per minute. He earned a whopping $32 from his concert there in Washington. Here we have one of the world's greatest violinists, Josh Bell. Most people walked right by, never even knew it never bothered to turn their head and look. When you know who that individual is, you realize how ridiculous it is that nobody noticed. Now, I don't claim that I would recognize Josh Bell. I don't claim to know his music. But for anyone who did know who Josh Bell was, man, that, that young man deserved better treatment than he got there. People should have recognized his talent should have appreciated his playing. And it really was a true shame that some of these people who, who knew Josh Bell but didn't recognize him, they had such a close brush with him but didn't even stop to marvel at his nearness, at his closeness, and to pay attention to the glory of his music. I share that because on a much deeper, much more profound level, this happens every single day around the world. How many people, how many of us walk the world without noticing our glorious God who created the world in which we live? How many millions attend houses of worship each Sunday and do almost the exact same thing? We're like Laodiceans perhaps. You're singing, you're sitting, you're listening. But your heart's not entranced by me. You're not seeking me. It's so easy to live our lives distracted by our to-do lists and distracted by, I got to get to work. I got somewhere to be. That we don't pause and think about the most important things. If we could but manage to daily fix our gaze upon the king of Revelation 4 and 5 and understand what it means to belong to him and to see this king for who he is and to realize he 
has done everything. He is sovereign over everything in my life right now. And in him right now is everything that I need. It is not a stretch to say you could walk out of here today and I could walk out of here today a very different person. Not saying your life would be different, your circumstances would be different. All that's still in place. But you and I changed. Because in light of him, perspective changes. This is the purpose of the vision of Revelation 4 and 5. And I would contend this is the greatest need for the church in every age and the church today. The greatest need. We who are so distracted by other things, mundane things, worldly things, even religious things. The most important thing to see this vision of our king in Revelation 4 and 5 because John is telling us the seven churches telling us, to you who conquer and overcome, you will be seated. I have not been able to conquer or overcome a single day of my life. Victory is in looking up and seeing the glorious holiness of our God. The best remedy for our ongoing battles is to see God. And the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Now, that's the structure. That's the connection. That's where we're going. Let me close this morning just simply by reading it. And my prayer is that you and I will spend time with this king this week. Looking to him bringing him to bear upon our lives. It's not a photograph. It's a vision of our all-glorious king. Let me read together, then we pray. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. I don't know. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created.